This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 1st, and this is Franchise Today. I'm Stan Friedman coming to you from the bunker. Yes, like many in this new and hopefully temporary reality, I'm hunkered down right here in Marietta, Georgia. As has been the case since the onset of this coronavirus crisis, we're going to continue dispelling with the usual front of the house and birthday greetings so that we can keep our focus on the progression and hopefully soon regression of COVID-19 and the impact that it's having on us all. I want to take just a minute too to thank Mike Drum for joining us last week in addition to sharing pragmatic legal tips surrounding the crisis for also serving up his top 10 pointers for working from home. For those of you who have found yourself suddenly hunkered down in your own bunkers, having to work remotely perhaps for the first times in your careers, Mike's top 10 tips for doing so should be very, very helpful and prove to be a resource for you. You can find it posted up for your reference on the Franchise Today Facebook page. And so here we are. It's week three in this strange new world, and we are still locked in the grips of this invisible enemy. A little closer to our hearts, no matter where home may be for you, franchising too remains caught up in the clutches of COVID-19, squarely in its crosshairs, with social separation giving way to sheltering in place and even quarantine orders in some locales around the country. We are experiencing all of this in real time, and things it seems are a little different in some places than others. So my focus over the next several weeks will be to bring voices to these changing times with stories each week from some of franchising's veterans as they describe how they're dealing with all of this from practical, pragmatic, frontline points of view. I'm back in just a minute with the first in this series, Steve Jackson, CEO of Hungry Howie's. Franchise Today will be right back, but first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, Stan Friedman here with a word about Transitive, an amazing marketing platform that actually delivers what others can only imagine, accurate, dependable results that are second to none. All right, without getting too deep into the weeds, Transitive connects franchisees' customer data from all sources providing high-octane fuel for their marketing engines. They then deploy machine learning. Yes, artificial intelligence, which identifies various customer traits and habits, attributes that would otherwise likely go unnoticed, and it segments these customers into groups. This is important because, as we know, not all customers provide your franchisees with equal dollar value. But wouldn't it be great if they could easily identify who's who? Well, that's exactly what Transitive does. And what's more, it then accurately drives the appropriate offers to each of those customer groups, delivering specific personalized messages to each of the group's customers. Just like that, your franchisees are engaged in laser-focused target marketing, delivering them much more bang for the buck. You've got to see it to believe it. So what are you waiting for? Order up a demo today and tell them I sent you. Find them online at www.transitive.io. That's www.transitive, T-R-A-N-S-I-T-I-V dot I-O. 
For many of us, these times feel more like the pages of a best-selling Michael Crichton thriller than real life. But this is not a book, nor is it a drill. It's the real deal. And we're all wrestling with the dual impact of coronavirus, both medically with its impact on health and welfare, and economically as it wrecks havoc, too, on our businesses, employees, and consumers. My guest today is Steve Jackson, CEO of Hungry Howie's. With 45 years on the front lines in pizza and franchising, and some 500 150 takeout and delivery restaurants over 21 states. Steve is a guy who thought he'd seen it all. But as he'll confess to you in just a minute, these times are different than anything he's ever experienced in his nearly half century in business. Steve Jackson, welcome to Franchise Today. Good morning, Stan. Nice to be here. Thanks for uh, making us a part of Franchise Today. Well, you know, I've been a fan of Hungry Howie's for years. I've admired the brand and your leadership and the things that I've read about that you've done over these 40 plus years to build and grow this brand. But who knew when we talked about it and finalized it the 2nd of March that today we'd be sitting here in the midst of a global crisis that has not just food and franchising paralyzed, but our way of life. Who'd have thought? You're absolutely right. It's it's a very unfortunate uh, development that's taken place over these last weeks. What's happened in the United States just in the last you know 10 to 20 days is unprecedented, and uh, we're living through it day to day. And the economic impact of this is so immeasurable. We don't know where we're going to be down the road, but we're going to take it day to day right now. Well, we're going to waltz through this and do the dance here today as part of what would be an otherwise ordinary interview with a great and iconic brand. And we'll probably pepper in some of the the things that are going on in today's world as part of our conversation. But I want to start first the way I do every week, asking you to rewind the tape back to how franchising found you, where it was and what you were doing and back in the 70s that got you and Hungry Howie's into the same arena and on your way to the iconic growth that this brand's experienced? Well, it's it's interesting. Like, as you said, franchise finds us. And that's basically what happened to me. My experience started when I was a teenager. I grew up in Garden City, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit. And as you know, Southeast Michigan is kind of a hotbed for pizza chains with uh, Domino's, Ann Arbor, Little Caesars, and uh, now Hungry Howie's that had started uh, many years before that. There was another brand in uh, the Detroit area. The founder of our company owned a couple of franchises of, and I delivered pizza for him at that brand. And uh, that was in the 71, 72 time frame. He had the two pizza stores. He also had a small hamburger shop, which was one of the little white porcelain buildings that fall in that white castle category. <clears throat> it was called TikToks. I was 17 years old, my buddies, and I delivered for him. His name was Jim Hearn, and Jim was 29 at the time, and he was a real mentor to us. We looked at him as just being the wealthiest person that we knew. We grew up in 1,000 square foot houses, very blue collar, and Jim had just built a brand new 1,800 square foot house in a suburb 10 miles west, and he had two new cars. So we nicknamed Jim Howie. Howie after Howard Hughes, because we thought he was the richest guy that we knew. And we literally, you know, followed him. He was the Pied Piper. So in 72, I graduated from high school. And my goal in high school and in leaving high school was to be a school teacher. So I commuted to Eastern Michigan University, which is in Ypsilanti, Michigan, about 20 miles from where I grew up, and went to work at Ford on the assembly line 
build cars and just to make money, uh, kept in contact with Jim. Jim sold the pizza places. He wasn't happy with what that chain was doing. And he had this little hamburger stand. And when I was going to Eastern Michigan, the most happening restaurant bar on campus was called Hungry Charlie's. And that's where all the students gathered around in between classes. And Jim made the decision in uh, late 72, early 73. And he said, I'm going to go back in the pizza business. And he said, I'm going to rip out a couple of booths in this hamburger stand and I'm going to open a pizza shop. So he said, I got to come up with a name. So we're thinking Hungry Charlie's was a great place. We've been calling him Howie for a few years. So that's how the name Hungry Howie's came out. Threw that on the table. He says, that's going to be it. Put the sign up and, and started in February of 1973 uh, with the first Hungry Howie's. And, you know, he was, did pretty well right from the beginning. Jim was an operator. You know, he was uh, an operations person. So he made it happen. Well, I was going to college. School teacher was going to be my goal. Met my wife when we were 16, and we got married in 1975, had our first child. And I came to the realization at that time, going into my senior year of high school, that there were no teaching jobs available. All the teachers were getting pink slipped in southeastern Michigan. My father-in-law was a school principal. Some of my wife's siblings and in-laws were in education, and they said, don't do it. I was making pretty good money at Ford, disliked that job significantly, decided because of my contacts with Jim, that maybe it made sense to quit college going into my senior year, which was not a very popular decision with my parents and my in-laws, and quit Ford Motor Company, which at that time was pretty much a job for life. You know, if you got a job there, you just stayed there, especially in the blue collar segment. And open Hungry Howie's number two. And that's what we did. Fortunately, I had the support of my wife, Jim. We partnered, opened store number two in 76. That's my introduction into the business. Hit the gas from there. What came thereafter? So you opened that first store in 76 and walk us through the ensuing years. So, so what ended up happening was we were doing pretty well. So my best man in my wedding, who had worked at Fords and I had grown up with, decided to quit Ford. He opened a store and partnered in a store. Jim's brother, who had worked in another business, ended up leaving that business, opened up a store. The maid of honor in our wedding's husband ended up leaving what he was doing, opened up a store. Hmm. The guy that we worked with at Ford did the same. So in the 70s, we opened about a dozen stores with friends and relatives through partnerships, and everybody was doing pretty well. Bear in mind, in 19, when I opened that store in 1976, I was 21 years old. Maybe not as concerned or you, you don't dwell on what, what possibly could happen negatively, you know. And, and then what we did was we, we built these, these dozen stores, and then I had read different articles, and I went to Jim, and I said, Jim, I think we should franchise this. And he had such a bad experience with the pizza chain that had that small chain that was franchised. And he said, no, I don't think so. I don't really want to do that. Well, I kept on him and then finally got him to, to meet with an attorney. And in 1980, we began the process to franchise in Michigan. And uh, we awarded our first franchise in 1983. It, it, it took a while to make that happen. And in the meantime, Jim's goal prior to that was to move to the state of Florida. And in 1981-2, he made the decision, picked up his family, sold me his stores he had in Michigan and said, listen, you know, we're partners in this franchise company that we're just starting. And he goes, I'm going to go to the state of Florida. I'll develop Florida. You take, you know, the rest of the world and uh, let's see what we can do with this. So he moved to Florida and opened a couple stores down here. And then after 83, we began the 
franchising process. We, we were actually dealing with a broadline food supplier in a suburb of Detroit that was sending semis of food to Florida on a weekly basis. Imagine that in today's oh, world. Wow. You know, gas was significantly you know less than what have you, but that that's how that's how it happened in the beginning stages. And then uh, we had an opportunity when uh, a friend that was running a broadline company decided to lead that company. And in 1986, we had 65 locations between Michigan and Florida. We opened uh, Hungry Howie's Distributing in Michigan and went into the food and distribution business and sent those same trucks to Florida every single week. And then we just began that kind of slow, conservative growth process. You know, a lot of friends and relatives and you know, as you start to franchise their friends and relatives. You know, so we opened a few hundred stores in the uh, late 80s and 90s. Immediately after 86 and 87, we, we decided shipping trucks back and forth wasn't going to work, and Florida was growing pretty steadily. So we opened a distribution center in Lakeland, Florida, so that they can independently supply, and that was, that was a great move. That's how it started. And if you, if you do what we did at the beginning of this conversation today, where we said who knew what we'd be dealing with today when we set this up at the beginning of March, I'll ask you the same question about your career, Steve, because for somebody who had teaching on his horizon as his goal and was making money at Ford Motor Company, the two things that are cornerstones are still part of your life, aren't they? You're still teaching franchisees and you're teaching delivery, which is all about cars. So Exactly. Well, it's interesting <laughs> that you say that. I had, a, I had a big birthday 15 years ago. I will tell you prior to that, I always thought I should go back and finish my degree, but we never had time to do it. And then I thought when it was all said and done, if I had the degree, what's that going to do for me? So I just postponed it. So this big birthday that I had 15 years ago, my wife and my daughter went to the provost at Eastern Michigan University and kind of proposed the uh, possibility to give me a lifetime achievement degree based on what's happened. And they did all the research. They did everything. They had never done that before. And I ended up getting the first lifetime achievement degree at Eastern Michigan University. And when I accepted it with a group of people and the president and what have you, that's a exactly what I said, Stan. I said, <laughs> truly, I ended up becoming a teacher, not necessarily in the classroom, but in business. And, you know, that's exactly the comment that I made. And I agree with you 100%. Well, let's talk about this brand that you've built, because it's not just pizza. You've put systems in place. You have put disciplines in place that have taken this brand and done things with it that others in food can only wish for. You were an early adapter to understanding the value of having email addresses and phone numbers and addresses that people were ordering from. You had some tools at your disposal that others didn't. And you you didn't do anything with that except grow a business and do it smartly. Talk a little bit about those growth years and how the consumer side of the business with food and flavor was met by the business side of the business with disciplines, marketing, and, and steady hands. Well, those disciplines and marketing are encouraged by all the people around you. There is no way that I'm going to take the credit for all the decisions that we made. In 1983, when we awarded that first franchise, we sat back because prior to that, you know, we were all running the stores. Food costs, labor costs, you know, we didn't even think about that. It was just gut feel. We're getting slow, two employees are off. We're hand-making pizzas, and if you put too much cheese on, oh well. But when we decided to franchise, that's when the reality hit that said, we have to be able to teach these people how to deal with this business. So we developed a pretty 
rudimentary training program and training manual at that time and began, you know, trying to systemize. This is prior to computers. This is right on the cusp of conveyor pizza oven because we opened in the 70s with deck Baker Pride oven where you put the pizza in, you spun it around and you pulled it out. So that training program began in 1983. And I'm going to tell you what, Stan, it's still not done. We are continually changing it and modifying it, and uh, it'll never be done. But it's pretty sophisticated, you know, in, in the 35, 40 years since we put that together. The people that have been around that have helped us, that worked with us over these years, have take the credit. I, I'm going to be honest with you. In 1995, I remember this very vividly. I was sitting at a conference table with the top people in our company at the time, and one of them looked at me and said, I think we need to spend $1,400 and build a website. And I looked at him and I said, explain it. He explained it to me. My first response was, I don't think we're going to do that. So obviously they were convincing enough over a very short period of time to make me believe that that's what we had to do. And we invested that money. And that's where the credit goes is the, the, the staff that you work with, the smart people that you're able to surround yourself with. We probably put our first computer in a store in uh, 93 to 95 in that time frame. You take computers and as sensitive and as they are in a hot flower flying through environment, you know, and, and it was hard to get them to survive. And we, we went through a number of years trying to understand how we would deal with those computers and the information because we knew it was important. Uh, truly, before that time frame, my first experience with computers, and I had none, my father-in-law had a friend whose son started to write code. And this was literally 83 to 85. So I went out and bought an Apple IIe that I paid like 20 three hundred dollars for in 1983 and he wrote the code and we took computer or we took registers more sophisticated cash registers and developed a price lookup system which you'd enter these numbers in and print this eight foot long receipt and then we would sit at this computer after he wrote this code and try to hand enter all this information and in to generate food cost information and box counts information to help run the stores better it was so archaic that it was the cusp of our introduction to technology. And we learned from that. And then as the industry evolved and the powers that be in technology offered those computers, we went through a period of time where we, we dealt with three or four different systems and then ended up dealing with the one company that's the leader in the pizza industry right now. That's kind of, we built off that platform for, for 20 some years. And it's, it's, been very valuable to what we're doing today. Pizza is an amazing, amazing market segment. Three billion pizzas sold each year. 350 pizza slices are eaten every second someplace in the world. 46 is the average number of slices a person eats each year. And it's said to be the fourth most craved food in America. I'd wonder what the other three are. Do you even know what the other three are? How could pizza be number four? Well, you're probably going to throw burgers in there or uh, chicken sandwiches. I, I'm surprised it's four, too. I mean, I, I don't know what. I know burgers and probably chicken sandwiches are in that top three, but I don't know what would make pizza four. And when maybe a hot dog would throw in there as well. But I want to talk a minute 
about these crazy times that we're in when we come back from our break. But before we go there, from the consumer's perspective, we talked a little bit about the business side of, of how you, you and your team have grown this brand. But you guys are famous for something else that others have customizable pizzas, but Hungry Howie's is famous for its customizable pizza. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Flavored crust pizza. We were the innovators of flavored crust pizza back in the early 80s. It's been our niche for 35 plus years. Growing up in the Detroit area, now, as our brand grew up, we were fighting serious competition with Little Caesars and Domino's. The brands, you know, the buy one, get one free pizzas. So I think we were on the leading edge of that before it trickled nationally. So, you know, we always tried to figure out something that would make us just a little bit different. We are a very, very value conscious business and we do price uh, aggressively. So we still fall into that competitive nature, but Flavored crust pizza was something that we dabbled with, a franchisee in 82, 80, or actually 83, one of the first ones, you know, had put some sesame seeds on a crust or buttered the crust. And, and we decided that we'd do a test on a number of stores in the Detroit area. It was pretty interesting, the customer's reaction. And in, in actually in 1985 or 84, we made the decision, you know, we only had maybe 40 stores at the time, to make Hungry Howie's flavored crust pizza. You know, I can't say that it's the only reason or that anything that we've talked about would be the only reason, but I think it's the full recipe of business sense and common sense and taste and flavor that has helped Hungry Howie's boast same store growth for 30 or more quarters. That's eight years. I mean, that's unheard of. Obviously doing a lot of things right there, Steve. Tell you what, let's do. Let's take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, let's come back and talk about the franchising aspects of your business. And let's talk about some of these crazy times that we are in right now and how somebody with 45 years of leadership in QSR can maybe drop a couple of breadcrumbs here for the audience as to the way forward or the things that you're seeing and share some of that insight with us as well. We'll be right back with Steve Jackson, CEO of Hungry House. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. This portion of Franchise Today is brought to you by Zoracle. Providers of spot-on profiles, the gold standard of assessment tools that assure you're selecting the right franchisees every time. Unlike DISC or others that simply gauge personality or communication styles, Zoracle's spot-on assessments are all franchise-specific and based upon seven sciences that nail the results each and every time. Your prospects simply answer a few questions online and like magic, Zoracle's algorithms scientifically slice, dice, and analyze their thresholds for risk, their business acumen, and even their propensity for single or multi-unit ownership. Zoracle's spot-on analysis is like having a crystal ball. But there's no hoodoo here. It's all based upon science that flawlessly determines franchisee, franchisor compatibility, and accurately predicts performance. Why don't you schedule a demo today and take a complimentary look and see for yourself. It's the closest thing to a sure thing. Zoracle, spot on assessments based on science, but delivering results that seem simply magical. Check them out at www.zoracleprofiles.com. 
And we're talking today with Steve Jackson, CEO of Hungry Howie's Pizza, the guy who has grown up in his own business, started his career 40 plus years ago as the owner of his first Hungry Howie's store, has built not just more stores, but a brand into an iconic 549 locations nationwide and has grown this business in a way that has had eight years of same store sales growth, which is just unheard of. So, I mean, this is a brand that is to be admired and to be talked about. And we're in times now, Steve, where uh, a reset button for the entire world has been hit in this COVID virus. We're going to talk about franchising and about who it is that you try to bring into your organization and what they bring with them and what it is they get when they arrive. But we've got to take a minute to pause and talk about these times that we're in right now and the impact that this has had on you and how you're managing through these incredibly difficult times. It's, as I said at the beginning, unprecedented. My leadership team has a conference call uh, every morning right now at 9 a.m. to talk about the last 24-hour developments and predict the next 24-hour developments. Uh, We're making decisions we've never had to make before. The biggest decision this morning that we're trying to figure out today is do we reduce our business hours? The thing that we've tried to do is to remind our franchisees because they're there's a, there's a wide group of people that, that we're dealing with right now. There's people that have their finger on the panic button and they're scared to death, and, and rightfully so. And then there's people that are, ah, who cares? You know, I mean, it's just another virus. So it's trying to find that happy medium and direct our staffs and our franchisees accordingly. The thing that I try to remind them of uh, that everybody's aware of is businesses have been shut down across America. I mean, there are truly people that have already pushed the panic button, and that's rightfully so. And I'm reminding them that we are in a business model that actually have had the reprieve, and and we're probably, you know, in that 10% of businesses that can survive if we can get through this as a brand. You know, in the restaurant industry, we've always taken sanitation and cleanliness as a number one goal, but we're we're really beefing those efforts up. We're, We're dealing right now with staffing problems where, you know, as as we've lived through this for seven to 14 days, we have a young staff. We have a lot of, you know, 16 to 21-year-old people. And there's a lot of parents out there that have told their kids, you're not working, stay home. So we're trying to figure out a way to convey the message to our staff that we're going to do whatever we can to keep them healthy. But try to incentivize, we do have some incentives in place where we're bringing in different food for them in the evenings and what have you, or, you know, we've, some of our supervisors have gone out and got, you know, little gift cards for gas or what have you. And we're trying to, to use those type of incentives to, to keep people focused, but also reminding people that we're, we're kind of in this short, small percentage of lucky people to still be able to function. Business has been a little bit down, you know, I mean, as, as a chain, we're, we're probably down. Last week, we were down 9.6% at the chain, which truly is not, not that terrible. But today, we're making a decision to maybe cut hours because the franchisees are losing staff members, are doing whatever they can to keep people motivated enough to work, but also understand what we've dealt with the last few years is when unemployment has reached 3.5%. They're just, you know, we're at the bottom of the food chain for employment. 
and to find people to staff our stores last year was a tr was a problem. What interestingly has happened is we've probably received on a store by store basis more applications in the last seven days than we had in a very long period of time because the poor people, the businesses that have been shut down, are coming looking for ways to make a few dollars. So we're trying to balance that out. You don't have a lot of time for training and, and what have you, but at least from a delivery standpoint, we can bring drivers in and that's uh, that's a little easier to train and manage, but it's day-to-day, case-by-case. Our college stores, which we have a number of them, obviously they're hurt 50% because all those kids went home. There's no silver linings in this anywhere, but if there was one, your franchisees have to just stand back and count their lucky stars that they're not 5,000 square foot building that's working out of a window trying to adjust to a model. You're built for this. So you're lean and you're mean and your delivery concept to begin with, and you don't use third party for delivery. You use your own team of people while the labor is a problem. Like you said, it's been a problem for a long time with unemployment being as low right. as it has. Cutting hours probably would be a sensible thing, but you're in a space that literally if you had to be in a restaurant space when something like this drops, what a better concept to be in. Absolutely right, Stan. And that's what we're trying to convey to our people. But they're in the field. They're dealing with the, the customers and the, the employees. And uh, just the mindset, the, the fear that's out there is understandable. Probably the, the best justification that that I'm hearing from my team on considering cutting back hours is to at least have kind of like one shift, like an 11 to eight. It's like right now we're open like 11 to 11 or maybe midnight on the weekends. Well, that late night business has never been a big part of the business percentage wise, but you know, we've always been available. You know, they might want to cut back, you know, to eight or nine. So that's what we're considering where we might lose some business, but concentrate it and staff the stores with maybe one shift instead of two shifts. Uh, these are decisions that we've never even thought about in the past that, uh, you know, we, we have to really have to decide too what, what we decide, what long-term effect will it have, okay? If we grind our staff and just, you know, try to tell them to keep working, wh when we come out of this, what's the attitude going to be? What's our franchisee attitude going to be down the road once we're out of this? Because we've always kind of promoted a family type of atmosphere that was, you know, we have core values in our business and, and the first one is treat everybody like family, you know, whether it's the office, the customers and whatever. So we have to make sure that we don't send a message in critical times now that'll have a long-term effect. On the other hand, if we cut our hours back and our regular customers are looking for product, are we going to send them to our competition and possibly have a long-term loss of customers? So, you know, it's not an easy decision to make. It really isn't. You know, we'll be stronger for it, I think, when it's all said and done. I, I just can't imagine long-term. I actually have a friend that for 25 plus years owns uh, 15, 18 high-end Italian restaurants in the Southeast Michigan area, and he's been closed down. And there was an article in the, in the Detroit Free Press yesterday that he says, if this goes on, we're out of business. This guy has built his life in fine dining and it could be gone in the next two weeks. You know, I have a friend that's one of the largest auto manufacturing people in the world. And I was with him yesterday and on Friday, he laid off 28,000 people. You know, the, the facts are just undeterminable, you know, and that, that's the fact today, but where are we going to be six months from now? You know, it's just, uh, to wind this economy back up and, and we were spinning it was it was going pretty and well. i think we're going to spin again i think this is yep, we will this this is yep. going to blow out and we don't know how long it's going to take to get to the point of impact but mm -hmm. we will reach the bottom of this 
free fall. And then when we do, I'd like to share with the audience in the balance of our time together, how you go about franchising. And if we didn't have this brief interruption of calamity that's going on in our lives now, we'd be having a conversation today about who it is you're looking for and what skill sets that they bring to be met by those uh, tools that you provide. And I'd like to share a little bit in our closing time together, a little bit more about that because it's going to be back, Steve. We're coming back. It's just uh-huh. a question of when. So who is the, the ideal franchisee for Hungry Howie's? I know you do single unit, but I know you too looking for multi-flagged or multi-unit guys as well. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you look for and what it is they find when they get here. Well, uh, the franchising model and uh, goal to pick franchisees has changed over 35 years. I think any franchisor, when you first go in the business, you could fall prey to anybody that has a, ch- a pulse and a checkbook and, and sell them a franchise. But as a, you know, you learn pretty quickly that it's very important to pick the right people to be partners. Uh, we did that even in the 80s, but every once in a while, people slide in that really weren't meant for the business. Where we're at today is, you know, we're using personality modeling tools and, you know, everything that we can to identify the best candidates. The golden goose for all franchisors are the multi-unit franchisors. We've kind of tried to target those people, but it's a tough group to break into with these brands, these franchisees that own multiple brands in a particular city. Every franchise wants those type of people. So they're very selective in who they pick. As we grew our brand over the course of 40 years, there's so many changes. And, you know, we kind of got into a point where we were promoting from within. And in 2006, seven, eight, I started bringing some people in from the outside. We began a process of rebuilding our brand in 2010, you made a comment about the same store sales increases. Well, we made a promise to our franchisees at that time that we were going to increase store profitability and store same store sales, whether we grew or not. And we haven't grown a ton in these last years because that's what our focus has been. So from 2008 until the first of 2019, we had 35 consecutive quarters of same store sales increases, which as you said, is iconic in the restaurant industry. That changed. We missed three quarters last year and I won't go deep on that. The third party had an impact to the pizza industry because prior to that, if you wanted something delivered, most chances it was pizza. And then all of a sudden it changed. But the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year, we, we are positive. I don't know what's going to happen this week ending this quarter, but we were positive. But in picking the right franchisees, we've rebuilt our brand to where we've kind of taken our image up to another level. With that, we're trying to bring the franchisee base up and be more selective. So we've grown significantly at a less pace but I think it's better for the brand long-term and we're making whatever effort we can for the multi-unit people because they understand what's involved in the restaurant industry with the brands that they're part of. And to the point that we made on our break, just quietly talking to each other while our commercials were airing from my audience, we talked about big data and we talked about the power that Pete says I kind of touched on earlier in the conversation. You've got a ton of information at your disposal that more sophisticated business owners would know what to do with. Spend a moment on that if you would. Well, interestingly enough, pizza has more data than pretty much any other brand. You know, if you go to the Golden Arches or some of those, you know, quick service restaurants, they might get your your text number out or your email address 
that because of the computerization over the last 25 years with the pizza category, we have everybody's name, address, phone numbers, their cell numbers, their email address. We know when you order and we know what you eat when you order. So what we did with all the computers that we had back 2010 to 2014, as we had put all these computers in the stores, we didn't really manage the standardization of it because franchisees would go into it and add their own coupon. And then when you try to download that information, you just have a hodgepodge of a mess. So we spent two years standardizing every, every store in the country and putting the same POS system in every store of the country. And that process started in 2014. And what we've learned since then has just been absolutely amazing. We were fortunate enough to meet a company in Los Angeles that were data scientists. And they, at the time, we were one of their first brands to line up with them. And since that time, they've got every major brand that you're all familiar with, not just pizza. But these data scientists looked at our information and they were just salivating like, oh my gosh, what can we do with this? So with that information, we've built our own intelligence to build a lapsed customer program because we know how often people come to us. When they fall out of that lapsed customer program, we're able to identify them and target them with an offer or an incentive. And if they don't come back over the course of time, we can increase that incentive to the point that we'll just give them a free pizza to bring them back in. So that's kind of changed the game because prior to this, the main source of marketing for the pizza industry for decades. Every single week, there were coupons in the mailbox. And believe it or not, we still do some of that. We we used to mail 52 times a week. And then two years ago, we were at 24, not a week, 52 times a year. Then two years ago, we went to 24. Last year, we went to 18. This year, we're going to 12. And the younger people in our brand, even my children that are involved in the brand, are like, forget the mailbox. Don't do it anymore. But some of us old dogs think, well, you still have this percentage, and we're kind of winding down from it. But what we're learning from social media and digital, I'll share with you an example. Our first experience with digital marketing was in 2016. It was our first real completely nationally integrated marketing digital push. And what it was was leap year. So prior to that, we've done very great promotions, you know, buy a pizza, get a pizza free if you do, you know, whatever the the metric or the offer might be. But we coordinated with public relations and marketing all across all the 20 states that we were in. And we ran an offer that said, buy a large pizza at the regular price and get a large pizza for 29 cents. And we had done offers like this in the past. And, you know, we'd get maybe a 10% bump or, or what have you. And what ended up happening, I don't know that anybody took it as seriously as they could because that was kind of like the cusp of the beginning of digital marketing. And on that day, we opened our stores and by 7.30 that night, 75% of our stores were closed, out of business, ran out of food. Never happened in the history of the company. And our sales were up 112% nationally. And we had people just bouncing off the walls. Like our franchisees were mad. Why'd you do that? We'd done things like that before. But this was a, a time that we sat back. Our leadership team went in the office and we were doing everything we could to satisfy people. But man, we all had snickers on our face going, what did we just learn here? Wow. You know, we can change the model, but what did we just learn? So that was kind of the start for us to begin the digital process that we started over these last four years. 
years. And we just did another leap year promotion, obviously, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. And some of the people were afraid it was going to happen the same way. And I said, no, it's not going to do that. That that was the beginning of it. But our sales were up 22%. So, so again, we've learned a lot with this information and, and how to, you know, massage it and how to send it because you can't send too much to, you'll lose them. So it's the business has changed from a marketing standpoint more in the last five to eight years than it has in 48 years. I don't want to let you get away without spending a minute or two on Love, Hope, and Pizza and the benevolent side of your brand, which it looks to me like is just about as important as bottom line in terms of your corporate culture. Can we spend a minute on that? Sure, absolutely. We started Love, Hope, and Pizza 10 years ago. And the thought process that made that happen was prior to that, Every business is approached by charities and, you know, they're, they're all looking for ways to, to help the charities. And, you know, we're trying to give $100 to this one, $100 to that one, 1000 to this one. And it just was watered down completely. So we made a decision a couple of years before that. We need to nail it down to one or two charities and we need to focus our efforts there and really try to make a difference with one instead of all of them. We came up with the idea of Love, Hope & Pizza along with actually Jeff Rinke, longtime employee marketing, came up with the idea of a pink pizza box. You know, we have a yellow box. That's our identifier and it has been for decades. And in the month of October, we changed those pizza boxes to pink and we started a program 10 years ago for the month of October, just like countless businesses have across America, but we've been able to to do it in a way with videos that we put on social media. We focused on store people, little two-minute videos that work for us that lost family members. I mean, I've had family members that we've lost. My mother, my grandmother had breast cancer. We, we made the decision that everyone is touched by breast cancer through a friend or a relative. So we, we started that focus. And in uh, 10 years, we've raised over $3 million for the National Breast Cancer Foundation in uh, Frisco, Texas, which concentrates on helping the underserved. So those people that can't afford mammograms, that's where that, that money goes to. And what this has done, Stan, is it's really kind of created a unified bond from the corporate office through distribution, all the way down to the stores, all the way down to the field people, because everybody's been affected by that. It's it's just kind of grown to be part of our fabric, part of our DNA. We I think we get a lot of respect from our customers and our employees of what we're able to raise and help the people that need the help. It's no wonder that this company has experienced the growth that it has and doing well by doing good is a mantra of mine for years and clearly, clearly it's a mantra of yours as well. Steve, we'd be remiss if I didn't get the audience information about how to reach out to you, how to contact you for further information uh, before we lose you here. I guess what I, probably the best way to do that would be just to email me. It would be uh, my email address is S as in Steve, S Jackson or Steve Jackson at hungryhowies.com. Uh, I'll do my best to respond in a relatively timely fashion. Email is probably the best way to do it at this point in time. I think we're going to park it there for today, Steve. We could spend hours, as you said earlier, and I'd like to have you back again when mm -hmm. the sun rises again and we get through this blip that has us all polarized right now. Let's get together again when life's back on track and talk some more about this amazing company called Hungry Howie's. Steve Jackson, CEO, thank you so much for carving out time, especially in these times, and sharing so much with our audience here today on Franchise Today. Thank you, Stan. It was a pleasure to be here, and everybody be safe. 
I could have easily spent another 60, even 90 minutes with Steve Jackson and maybe more with all of the life experience that he has to share. Let me once again encourage you all, please heed the advice being served up by those who know and minimize unnecessary interaction with others. Whether you deem yourselves to be sick, at risk, or not, you can be asymptomatic and feel just fine but still be infected. That could make you very dangerous to others with whom you come into contact. Like everything else in franchising, we're all in this together. The actions of one could have serious implications on many. So please, behave responsibly and hopefully. My hope is that we'll find our way out of this as quickly as we landed in this mess in the first place. For now, stay safe and continue to do the best you can. Until next week, I'm Stan Friedman wishing you the best. The very best of all things franchising. And Franchise Today is out. Franchise Today is a production of FRM Solutions, providing best-in-class CRM tools to empower relationships with prospective and existing franchisees. No excuses, just solutions. Find them online at frmsolutions.com. Join Stan every Wednesday at noon Eastern for another live episode of Franchise Today. Or, as always, download episodes on demand at blogtalkradio.com or iTunes.